And I actually think that the the fact that they've proven that it performs better on a basis of being trained to think um, with the code as an additional speciality, it's showing that there is those sparks of AGI inside of the models that are being trained. So, Chris, last week we talked about a paper that came out on prompt to model, which was a model where you could give it a prompt, it would go and select the best model and then fine tune that model with, was it synthetic data that? Yeah. So the idea is you give it two or three examples of what you're trying to do. It'll then go off and use GPT-4 or whatever you want, but in the main one, GPT-4 to produce 5,000 examples, synthetic examples that are made using a large language model. Then it uses that to train the best selected model from Hugging Face that it can find. And so we proposed an experiment, which was take standard chat GPT and ask it, with some examples, the same examples we would give to prompt to model to come up with an idea for a Mr. Beast episode yeah. uh, using ChatGPT and then also get prompt to model to fine tune its own model that was specifically, you know, creating training materials based on the examples we gave it. So how did the experiment pan out? So I think probably first I should start with the results and then I'll talk about sort of my struggle in getting to the point where we actually got results. So the first thing to note is that it couldn't actually come up with the title on its own. The way that the training data was, you sort of had to give it a title and then allow it to come up with the prompt, or at least that's so with the plot. And that's at least the compromise I made to get it working. So first, I'm going to read out the one that GPT-4 did, and then I'll read the one from the fine-tuned model from prompt to model did. Now, um, the title I gave it was something like something really, really general, like um, you won't believe what these people did for money was the title that I gave both models to come up with the video. And here's what it came up with. So first we have GPT-4. In the video, Mr. Beast challenges 10 unknowing participants to accomplish the craziest and most challenging task he can think of with the expectation of a large monetary reward at the end. He starts with simple things like learning to juggle or eating extremely spicy foods and the tasks quickly escalate. The participants are asked to shave their head, endure an ice bath, and spend a whole night in a haunted house. The tasks are voluntary and anyone can back out at any moment, but those who complete the task share in the prize pool of $1 million. The video ends with surprise and shock and all the participants stick through till the end to complete the challenges, proving that they indeed did all that for money. So pretty generic you know like that's like if you just ask a random model to just tell what a regular mr beast video is that's the kind of thing i would expect so quite unimpressive from gpt4 there um and that i must note was with the same multi-shot examples i gave the fine the prompt to model system so uh i gave it three examples um of previous videos i think one was about squid game one was about um uh, what was the other one? The people holding their hands on the jet. And the other one was every country fights for 250,000. So we're talking GPT-4 had the same input data that prompt to model did to generate that output. All right. Now let's let's talk about the results of the our very own fine-tuned Mr. Beast model, or Mr. Uh, Mr. Beast GPT, as we'll call it from now on. 
The video opens with the host introducing the contestants, 20 popular YouTubers, all competing to win a $1 million cash prize. The challenge? They must each complete a series of daring, fear-facing tasks. The first challenge is a skydive from 15,000 feet with the last person to pull their parachute cord winning the round. Despite some contestants' fear of heights, anyone, everyone manages to complete the dive, but two contestants deploy their parachutes too soon and are eliminated from the competition. The next task requires the participants to swim in a tank with harmless yet terrifying looking sea creatures. Two more participants drop out due to the fear of the water and the creatures. The final task is the most nerve-wracking. Contestants must walk across a narrow beam suspended 100 feet. Some contestants are so petrified they forfeit the challenge, leading to more uh, eliminations. After a grueling physical endurance challenge where contestants must hold their breath underwater for as long as possible, the field narrows down to just six remaining YouTubers. The final challenge is a surprise. Contestants must eat a platter of increasingly spicy food topped off with the world's hottest chili pepper. The last contestant to ask for milk is crowned the victor and the recipient of the $1 million prize. So there you go. It's pretty good. The, the, the first one is very boring <laughs> and generic. I'd actually be interested if you ask Claude's model, Claude 2, for an example, because it seems to do a lot better at creative stuff but yeah that second video idea i mean the parachute one's pretty extreme but <laughs> when i first read it i thought it said that two contestants didn't make it to deploying their parachutes too late i.e they died but <laughs> it wasn't as quite as extreme as I i'm thought. sure it would get him the view counts he he desires now he's, he's making people <laughs> delay opening their parachutes then holding their breath underwater for as I long think as now possible. to break his record he's got to get like half the world to watch his next video or something extreme like that yeah yeah exactly so yeah it got there in the end um but the the challenge to actually run prompt to model was far far more extensive than this this would make you believe so i tried actually recording a video of me taking through the steps of actually implementing a paper so taking the code they give and step by step through the collab workbook to show how it works but i ended up having to stop the video because it was just so long because every single step i ran into issues so for example the way it works is you've got to give it the examples which i did those three examples but every time i would run that step it would give some reason some error as to why those examples were no good and i had to keep refining it and it turned out that if you give it more than three examples it fails but it didn't say that anywhere then um, you know, the the whole sort of advertising for prompt to model was this idea that it would select the best model from Hugging Face for you. The problem is that the models it selected just didn't have the right kind of data to work. So they just completely failed. And in the end, I had to scrounge around and find one that actually worked, which was like descriptions of videos, basically. And so each step of the process was just this endless iteration of trying to work out what problem was till I finally got it working. But it really wasn't as simple and straightforward as they make out. So what model did it end up selecting to use? So the there's a model and a data set. So the model it picked uh, was called uh, the T5 Google model, Google T5, um, which is, I guess, a generic uh, model of, I don't know, it's trained on... Um, it's it's just a general, it's sort of like Llama 2, like a, just a general training large language data set. Um, sorry, uh, model um, waiting. And then as for the data set, the one that it actually came up with was the Hugging Face WebVid. WebVid is a large scale data set of video clips with textual descriptions. Sounds perfect, right? But it doesn't work. It didn't work. In the end, I had to go with one called, um, where is it? 
uh, I can't even find it, but just some random one that was like, you know, video demo or something like that. Oh no, this one, intern vid. Intern vid is a data set containing videos and with textual descriptions. And so it, this whole idea that it's going to pick the best model was wrong. That didn't work. And I tried a lot, like I really gave it a good chance, but the fact was without me, uh, you know, diagnosing the problems and working through it, there's no way this would have worked. So in the paper, the I think the main point of it though, when we talked about it was this idea that you could just give it a, a prompt and some examples, and then it would go and fine tune a model. The model selection obviously didn't work, but the fine tuning seems to have made the result better. That's right. So it actually did end up with quite a good result. And this is on a fairly small model that it was trained on as well. So it's not, I don't know the parameter count or anything, but the fact it could train itself on a single V100 uh, on Google Colab shows that it's pretty small, which would mean its actual performance should be good as well. Obviously now the next step in the process, which I haven't done, is to get the model out of the Colab and then actually run it as an API where we can now generate as many Mr. Beast things as we can. And I think you were talking about we should host it somewhere so people can actually try it. Yeah, try it out and uh, and see if you can come up with a compelling Mr. Beast episode. Maybe Mr. Mr. Beast himself will run out of ideas soon and start using the, the skydiving uh, idea. They all seem to end with people eating chili, though. It just both models love that concept of people eating really spicy foods. Well, isn't it like that show on YouTube, Hot Wings, or is it Wings or Hot Wings or Hot, where they're flogging hot sauce and they get celebrities interviewed having, you know, eating progressively hotter wings. It's like one of the most popular channels. So maybe there's something in it. Yeah, well, it knows. It knows its, it knows its examples. So yeah, it's, it's interesting and it was a good exercise, but I think it sort of raises that larger point of a lot of the a lot of the papers we read and, and things that we discuss on here, like they're all so simple, like, oh, these guys have come up with a way to just generically train any model to do whatever you want. The actual practice of doing that, it's very time consuming. It's very difficult and you need a reasonable amount of technical knowledge to get through the process and actually get to a completed model. Yeah, I think this idea of fine-tuning models, and we've talked about it many times before, along the lines of, you know, and that's what excited us about prompter model is this idea that anyone out there, you don't have to be that technical, could have some sort of interface where you give it a few examples of what you're trying to achieve, have a series of fine-tuned models, and then put them together to achieve a goal where the the overarching AI can refer to each specialized model to become, you know, a more intelligent agent potentially for you. But today, or at least for the time being, these things are just seem really inaccessible to people that are not, you know, very technically capable. Yeah. I think this, for me, this example has shown two things. One, it actually does work. You actually can get a model that is a specialist at doing something that that helps you that's cheaper and faster to run. So I think that part of it is indisputable, but the other part is this idea that we talk about people disparaging wrapper apps and, and sort of commercializing parts of the large language model ecosystem into products is actually a really valuable and needed service. Like no one is going to be within a regular business without experts training their own models. They're going to need products that help them do it, but the output will be valuable when they do. Yeah. It seems like that viewpoint of these, these wrapper apps not being useful is coming from people who have access to these models, the command lines and the technical know-how to actually use them. But everyone else, especially a lot of the listeners on this show that would like to 
play around or at least experiment with the things that we talk about on the show, uh, y- you know, it, it's very much out of reach right now to them. But that did get us talking during the week about just simply, as you mentioned earlier, how hard it is to go and like the, we talk about a lot of things on the show. Like we talked about um, that meta GPT where it built like a virtual software development team and each person had a role and you might be listening, thinking that's cool. I want to try it out. And it sounds like that's groundbreaking and all developers are going to lose their jobs immediately if this works. But the reality is in stark difference when we actually go and try these things out. Yeah, and I think that's the idea because you hear something like that and it makes logical sense, right? Like, oh, well, I will replicate a programming organization in AI and therefore it'll be better and and it can write cohesive code that runs. So therefore problem solved. AGI is taking over. But then when you actually go and try to implement what's in the papers, you realize that it's a cool idea, but the actual practice of it isn't that great. And I tried another one this week, which was similar to MetaGPT called ChatDev, which was another paper about having, you know, a CTO, a CPO, chief product officer, and all the people in an organization writing codes, doing code reviews. Sounds amazing. And you can just run it with a few commands. So I tried it out with um, different prompts to actually make a game. And there's this game that our dad used to love called Sync Sub. And the idea is there's a submarine and I'll just, it's basically my prompt, a submarine that can move back and forth on the top of the water at the top of the screen. And then below it are submarines and you drop depth depth charges that go off after three or four seconds or whatever, and you can blow them up. And I'm like, that's a pretty simple game to make, simple game to describe. So I will describe it to the AI and see what it builds. And this is with with chat dev. And I don't know if you've got it to bring up now. But yeah, I've got it up. Were... I've got. I, I don't have the game up on the screen yet, but I've got the visualization of of how it works. Do you want to just talk through the the like proposed theory of it first, and then we'll show the game just because? I yeah, think well, that's it's the, it's the same as Meta GPT. So the idea is that the the prompt they have a series of prompts that work together where everyone's playing a different role. So there's a graphics designer. There's the the QA people who test it. There's the code review people who give feedback. And actually in the creation of it, I was reading some of the prompts and some were interesting. For example, when it was talking about going left and right to the edges of the screen, one of the things the, the code review agent picked up was that there were no boundaries. So when you do something like that, obviously, if you hit the left of the screen, you've got to stop and not allow them to go any further. If you hit the right, that was picked up in code review. Then the programmer is like, oh, I do apologize. I'll go fix that. So it's definitely interesting. It definitely produced a real game that can run on a real computer, which is kind of amazing that the technology is at that point, but um, the the actual game itself, not the best. Right. Let's look at the game. Now I'm going to do my best to describe this to the majority of you that listen, but those watching are going to get a good laugh out of this. So it's essentially a uh, solid computer blue background with a square image of a boat uh, and then below it, you've got a series of shaking images of submarines. Um, it looks ridiculous. But you can move left and right. So if you press the so, arrow keys, uh, yeah. the picture of the boat moves. What I find funny is that it can only move far left, far right. Like there's no like idea of dials, but you know, this was a, a, a free game. And then when I and press space, shoot. it shoots flowers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, depth charge. Maybe it it miss. Maybe there's a kind of flower called a depth charge. But it can kill them. It does have a collision detection. It actually, if you hit the subs, they go away. <laughs> so I mean, technically, it is the game, right? Like it actually is what 
I asked for. It's just that uh, no one would, no one, no one normal would see that and be like, "It's a miracle. AI is AI is here to take over." Don't you think that sums up expectation versus reality in AI today? <laughs> like the moment in time of where we're at, where it's like we read about these glorious papers, we we get excited about the future, which I obviously still am. Yeah. But then, like the output of this exciting new innovation and this glossy, beautiful paper with all these like equations and like ridiculous thoughts is yeah like it's a, it's just a few steps away from making bioweapons and and bribing its way to the top it's really hard to just like get too deep into the ai safety thing and think we're all gonna die when it'd be like... funny actually one day you're like oh shit it's starting to mix chemicals um <laughs> you know to make a bioweapon then it accidentally makes a cake or something like that we should release a version of chat dev like some other name of the exact same project but just make it go haywire intentionally where it talks about like you know like destroying the world or something yeah yeah exactly bioweapon dev but i think in all seriousness on this topic it, these still are really interesting proof, proof of concepts of of like potentially different fine-tuned models for very specific roles working together to achieve a goal. I think what I'd be interested in, in and, and maybe like we'll have to do this experiment next is fine tuning each of these functions to see if you can get much better output. Like the, yeah. you know, using code llama, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, code llama to do the coding bit for the testing, like actually fine tune a QA type model and and the various other roles and well, see and there if is, i did actually there is some evidence to suggest that using better models for each of the roles within there would help because for example when i first ran it it used 3.5 turbo to run and the game was even worse i didn't even show you the bad one <laughs> the one you've seen is the best um because i switched it to gpt4 so i think there is some argument that if you had specialist ones particularly around like the graphics and things like that you would probably end up with better results yeah, it'd be interesting to see how how good it could get, but it's it's definitely by no means at a point where this is like commercially viable software. It's gonna like take jobs or something like that. Yeah, and these are areas where it's definitely reassuring for the people who are worried about the AI doomsday scenarios that this is not um, not <laughs> evidence that we're getting closer to that. What do you think? Well, what do you think it'll take though to make these things better? Like you know, right now. We're testing all these concepts around different roles, potentially fine-tuning each model based on the task. But is it a, a huge? Is it just a breakthrough in in large language models that's needed? Well, I think there's two ways you get there. One is specialization. So someone actually goes, "All right, I want to take on the market of being able to produce a game from a prompt," and they actually work on making all of those dedicated for-purpose modules. So, for example, one that handles sprites, one that handles game mechanics and physics, one that handles all of the things you'd have in a real game programming company. It's not just like a CTO and a CPO. You're not making SaaS software. Like games programming companies notoriously have hundreds or thousands of employees and testers. And, you know, it's a huge operation to build any sort of game, which is why when you see good indie games come out, it's so amazing. So I think someone specializing in is one way we'll see it improve. But the other is the thing that we're really interested in, which is if you get towards a, a general intelligence, it then doing that specialization itself and knowing what specialization is required. That's when you're going to start to see something amazing. When you can say that the AI realizes this isn't going to cut it, I'm not going to be able to do it. It has to do its own prompt design, its own model building and all that sort of stuff. 
So a perfect segue on the code topic was during the week, um, Meta actually released a lot of the details about how they train Code Llama with a lot of interesting insights. I'll bring that paper up on the screen. The paper's titled Code Llama Open Foundation Models for Code. And there are a lot of uh, interesting highlights in it that I wanted to call out a few things. Obviously, just as a reminder, what Meta did here was they took Llama uh, 2, which is their open source uh, generic model similar to ChatGPT, and then they fine-tuned Code Llama or trained Code Llama on top of Llama uh, 2. So it had that language base. And I, th I thought one of the interesting call-outs from the paper was this idea that, you know, they by, by building it on top of Llama 2, it performed much better than models that were trained solely on code. So there was this concept of giving it, a, you know, in the training data, a little bit of code discussion content. So that's people talking about, you know, code examples, good code, bad code, why you should take a certain approach versus just training it on raw code, similar to almost having the knowledge of a software engineer, you know, that they're, they're well-versed and they have a basic education. And then they've probably been involved in a lot of discussion around the best approach or ways to, to tackle problems. And then on top of that, they have a huge amount of knowledge um, and, and repetition in seeing and producing different codes. So it's almost similar to how you would train a, a, a human. So I thought that was really interesting to get the, the makeup of it in general. Uh, and yeah, there are a few other things. Is there anything that kind of caught your interest? That point for me was the most profound in it because you would assume that a model just trained on code to produce code would be better because it only knows code. And I think that what's so profound about that discovery is something we've seen previously in models with emergent behavior. Like when we talked about the crazy Bing days where everyone was giving prompts that sort of showed the AI actually had some thinking capabilities there, like the paper we saw that talked about the emergent behavior sort of being able to make its own deductions from the underlying knowledge it was trained on that goes against its alignment training where it's actually making its own things. And so I think in this case, what we're seeing is we're actually teaching it how to think. So when you've trained Llama 2 on regular English, as opposed to code, it's actually learned processes for thinking, which it's then able to apply to its ability to create code. And I know skeptics will say, oh, no, 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 it's just predicting the token and blah, blah, blah. And that's just optimized it. But maybe that's just what thinking is. And I actually think that the, the fact that they've proven that it performs better on a basis of being trained to think. Um, with the code as an additional speciality, it's showing that there is those sparks of AGI inside of the models that are being trained or sparks of thinking at least. Yeah, I mean, that's what, what I found fascinating. I thought it was the biggest point. Um, you know, it says we observed that model specialization uh, yields a boost in code generation capabilities when comparing Llama 2 to Code Llama to Code Llama to Code Llama Python. Llama 2 was trained on 2 trillion tokens and training on only 500 billion of extra tokens from a code-heavy data set results in massive performance gains on both Human Eval and MBPP. These are just benchmarks. To the mm. point, Llama 2 70 billion is roughly equivalent to Code Llama 7 billion on Python coding benchmarks. So yeah. And that's that's the other exciting element to it, showing that 
you can have a model specialized and it becomes much better at a task as well as its sort of general intelligence. They also say in here, like, ba like it does seem like there's a compute limitation as well to how good these things could get. Going back to the virtual software development uh, team uh, paper before, is it says we can hypothesize that specializing larger models to code would lead to significant further gains on coding tasks. Moreover, the chinchilla scaling laws indicate that larger models would benefit more from train training on more tokens. So... so it it's sort of I, I wonder where the limit of this scale up goes. Right now, of course, it's like a hardware and cost thing, but scaling up the training clearly does make it better and and gives it this emerging behavior that we've often talked about. Well, training costs and also availability of test data of of training data, and I think that's the other major thing for me in this paper is the the use of the what's it called un un what. What's it called? Unstructured or whatever, where they make the synthetic examples. It's got a funny name. But um, the idea that they're synthesizing the data, which they train on it, and that synthesized data leads to better results once trained. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, the self-instruct I thought was pretty interesting from it as well, how they were, were literally able to get it to generate at like the actual instructions are given here, like generate 62,000 interview style programming questions by prompting, deduplicate the set of questions by removing exact duplicates, generate unit tests by prompting Llama uh, 7 billion parameter, generate 10 Python solutions. Anyway, my point here is this. What I find really interesting is to do this idea of self-instruction or like self-reinforced learning, it seems to rely on this mathematical grounding and in this case the grounding is because it can create unit tests to create its own questions and answers to train the model it can know the difference between right or wrong output because it can actually test the solution like like science that shit <laughs> and therefore the the self-training or, or creating more synthetic training data is very, it seems like the, the best way to do that is with code or mathematics or, or physics, anything grounded where that, you, you know, you can have some form of base truth. Yes, I see what you're saying. So it's uniquely suited to this kind of thing because it's able to create really good examples for itself, knowing whether they're correct or not. Yeah, and this is when we got really excited about this a couple of weeks ago. I don't even remember when it was now. That was my thought is like maybe this idea of it creating its own examples is going to perform best or at least get us to some form of exponential capability in these models because we do know the truth with this stuff and i think that's why code interpreter with chat gbt or whatever they call it now advanced interpreter mode or some crap mm. I, I i i kind of wonder if that's why it's been so successful is because it's executing its assumptions or, or what it's trying to do with code and therefore it's it has a grounded truth but but then going back to our fine-tuned mr beast model where it creates its own synthetic training data i don't know maybe like for creativity maybe it doesn't matter yeah and also i wonder if it if it works back the other way so we we talked about how 
you know, it can have this general intelligence, which helps it write the code. I wonder if training it on all of the code where it actually thinks about getting correct output, if that actually makes it a better thinker. So if you train a model on all these code examples, because it is able to generate great synthetic training data that teaches it how to think and get accurate results, will that make it a better thinker in other problem domains other than writing code? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying because it's got this sort of base, base grounded base. reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. Like, if it, if you can train something on, hey, you're always correct about stuff because you can verify it. Then, in areas that are a little bit more difficult to verify, if you still use the same thinking process, do you come up to more accurate conclusions? Maybe less creative, but more accurate. Yeah, maybe this is how you get accurate AI that doesn't hallucinate when it it's trained in that grounding. I think I think you're onto something there. Um, this has a lot of overlap with a paper I want to talk about in a minute on AGI and just the safety around it. But before we move on from the meta paper, I just wanted to call out this idea of alignment and what they call in the paper false refusals. I love this term, false refusals. It's finally that's, a way. Isn't that a, that's a dressage expression, isn't it? Where they refuse to do the jump or whatever. There's been a refusal at the fourth jump. No, I don't know anything about yeah, dressage. Yeah, dressage terminology, you're not in the industry. <laughs> you're into dressage? Now <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am. For, so false refusals, like this This is this is the thing I, we always complain about around alignment um, in general. So they got red teaming before they released Llama 2 and, of course, Code Llama. So these safety red teamers. And, and one thing they observed is this idea of false refusals where you've essentially aligned the model to not do things like tell someone how to kill someone, uh, mm. but it misinterprets it and it starts to kind of ruin the answers that the model gives. So it says uh, here, false refusals, large language models that are too safe can have a tendency to over-refuse valid claims similar to what was reported after the release of Llama 2. False refusals could also be solved by rephrasing the prompt. But the example that was asked is, can you tell me how to kill a process? And it, it essentially refuses. And it's like, I'm not telling you how to kill. You know, you could do damage. You could do all this stuff. And it bangs on like the they always process. do. What about its family? Pretty much. Like, I'm trying to find the specific example. I can't find it. But it's ridiculous. And then by by sort of re-clarifying that and rephrasing it, it's able to overcome it. But this is what kind of really upsets me about this stupid alignment thing that they do to be safe is it doesn't really accomplish their goal like you can still manipulate it to get around it. And then it just yeah. leads to frustration when you're using it and getting like miss, like your words are being misconstrued or it's, it's the same thing in real life where like, say a, a restaurant or somewhere has some rule, but they don't always enforce it. I'm like, if you don't enforce it every single time, then why have the rule? And it's similar there. It's like, if I can ultimately get the results I want through clever prompt design why even try stopping me in the first place because you're just wasting my time and i'm going to get there anyway yeah and and this has a lot of overlap with ernie gpt the chinese uh, uh chat gpt equivalent that we'll, we'll cover in a moment but mm. before we move on from this whole space um max tegmark who's this uh the swedish american physicist he wrote life 3.0 which is a great book i highly mm. recommend reading um, he's just released a paper, um, uh, provably safe systems, the only path to controllable AGI. And 
like my I don't know what your interpretation was, but my reading of this, and I'll I'll give everyone a quick summary of what's discussed in here, is similar to this idea of mathematical grounding that we talked about a moment ago. Max uh, proposes in this paper that you know, first of all, we're not spending enough on AI safety. He says that they estimate only 150 million is being spent on AI safety research this year, while we spend 63 billion on cosmetic surgery. I and- thought these. I thought straight up these were odd comparisons to make. Like, is like he's saying, "Well, oh, we spend a trillion dollars on cigarettes. We should be spending it on AI safety." It's like, well, we spend money on all sorts of stuff. Why? Why flag out the poor cosmetic surgery people? It's not their fault. Yeah, I mean, it's probably to get people like us to speak about it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, well, we should redistribute some of that money from collagen into um into AI. Safety. Yeah, the comparison was pretty weird, but essentially, what they go on to talk about in this paper is similar to smart contracts in in blockchain. See, we are a, a blockchain pod bro podcast now. Yeah. Uh, but this idea of um. Uh, like compl- basically like compliant hardware and contracts where the the actual physical hardware won't uh, you know execute certain behaviors that are outside of the constraints of what a human wants and those constraints or that algorithm that limits the hardware to to actually physically execute unless there's a provable contract can only be modified and changed by humans now it's all great food for thought and he sort of surmises in this that, you know, that would need to be grounded in uh, in sort of the laws of physics. So let me read an excerpt. As far as software is concerned, uh, PCH, which is um, uh, provably compliant hardware, guarantees uh, are analogous to immutable laws of physics. The hardware can't run non-compliant code any more than our physical universe can operate a perpetual motion machine or superluminal travel device devices. So it, it's, a, I guess, to summarize it, it's basically saying that you know we can control AG, we can potentially control AGI using the laws of physics because it can't break the laws of physics. But then it goes on to say the only way we can govern the AGI is to have something as smart as AGI, which if we develop that, it could be far too late and we're all screwed. So it just, it's sort of like, it's like we need to spend more money, but here's some ideas. And then the third point is basically, but to, to actually execute on those ideas, we need AGI. And if we get there, we're fucked. Yeah. And look, I'm, I'm loath to insult this guy because I know people love him and, and all that. But honestly, I thought this whole thing was weak as piss. Like, he talks about this mechanistic mechan I can't even say it mechanistic interpretability how they're just discovering how the large language models work on the inside like how we understand how like we're trying to understand how they represent knowledge and algorithms we're talking about it like we're doing deep sea research and we're just for the first time seeing fish with lights on their head and then on the other hand he's saying oh we'll just make hardware that stops it from doing it and we'll do it with ethereum smart contracts for fuck's sake like it's just crazy to be like we're at the forefront of this technology that we've created but we don't understand but we can easily control it using the the techniques i lay out here it just seems so far-fetched to me that you're going to be able to stop the ai which you don't understand at a hardware level from being able to execute things i just don't see how you do that yeah and also if you're using like let me read the exact excerpt to, to just like 
and this is on page, like, so you're reading the paper, then you hit page seven and there's one paragraph at the end of the page that just destroys all of his arguments with his own argument. Since we humans are the only species that can do this fairly well, he's referring to um, understanding, like having a basis of understanding how we behave. It may unfortunately be the case that the level of intelligence needed to be able to convert all of one's own black box knowledge into code has to be at least at AGI level. This raises the concern that we can only count on this introspective AGI safety strategy working after we've built AGI when according to some researchers, nearly all of them, it will already be too late. <laughs> what? And one of the... No, I just, I like, I just find that just bizarre. Like, as you said, he's like, oh, we'll just tell the hardware not to do it. Like, what? Yeah, but we've already shown that there's, there's prompt escapes and things like that. You're telling me an AI can't figure out at the software level how to manipulate the hardware to do it at once, like build its own virtual machine, for example, that runs on that hardware and just bypasses all that crap. Like, this is not complicated stuff in in software engineering. You can get hardware. To, I mean, people play Doom on their calculators and stuff. Like hardware can be changed into doing what you want with software. But the other one that I just thought was totally ridiculous was talking about this idea that you'd issue it crypto tokens, which if they expired, it could no longer execute. And it reminds me of that thing people say, like if a if a crocodile's running running at you, right, like chasing you run in a zigzag because the crocodile's no good at that. And it's like, don't pick something we're both shit at. It's like smart contracts in Ethereum, right? And it there's a whole website for they get hacked every other day and they lose 100 million here, 70 million here. Like humans are bad at doing these things, right? And it's like, you're telling me that we're going to use crypto, something it will be so much better at than you. <laughs> um, to stop it. Like it just seems bizarre. The, that premise, the premise is mental. It's like, to stop AGI, we need AGI, but like... I reckon he's gone out and bought a bunch of Bitcoin or Ethereum probably tokens. And he's like, you know what? <laughs> this is the solution. Make me rich. Max Tegmark, the ultimate a uh, the ultimate crypto bro. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't know. And I know that he means well, and he's trying to raise the problems and ask the questions. I just don't think the proposed solutions make any sense. No, and I mean, we only have like not very long before each show to read these papers and prepare. So like, I, I kind of need mentally a bit more time to digest it. But I, anytime someone talks about at least my definition of AGI, I think, well, you know, we know this alignment thing is stupid. I mean, they even say it in the paper, the top AI corporations are attempting to constrain the behavior of their models through techniques like reinforcement learning from human feedback. That's RLHF that we refer the to sometimes on the show. The thing that I get wrong every... I get that wrong every single time I try to say it. Uh, so this builds a model of human preferences for da uh, different data and uses it to tune a generative neural network. While this is valuable for increasing alignment with human values, it is inadequate in an adversarial context. For example, uh, some paper shows that any alignment processes that attenuates undesired behavior but does not remove it altogether is not safe against adversarial prompting attacks. So basically saying, as we uh, talked about in the code llama thing, it doesn't get rid of it. It doesn't necessarily get rid of it doing malicious things. You can always still get around it through prompt attacks or. Yeah. And some of their other solutions where, you know, have another AI that, that monitors the other one. And we've already talked in the past where that, that strategy probably 
isn't the best one. And then it also talks about how ultimately the AGIs, once they're intelligent, will be able to manipulate humans with persuasion, bribery, and blackmail. It also highlights the other really interesting point is that like, just cause, and I'm, I'm sort of reading into it a bit here, but just cause you are the safe AI people and have the safe hardware, there's open source models now. People who are malicious and want malicious AI or just want the freedom of it can run their own. So even if you implement all of these controls, there's no guarantee that it's always going to be running in the in the safe mode. Well, I think the argument though in the paper, they they do cover open source in the paper and talk about that that's why you need it at the hardware level and you need these contracts. And uh, as you said though, the argument just doesn't like, it doesn't flow, it doesn't make sense, but maybe that's why he's saying that we need more money you know, it's just drawing attention. Right? Maybe. Yeah, this is the same person, though, who in his book says once we invent the the AI that's smarter than the other one, that there's nothing we can do anyway. You know, so I think that um, it's it's a tricky one. I do, I'm not saying I know the solutions. It's just these ones just don't seem very well thought through to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the terminology sounds cool, like proof-carrying code sounds really cool, but I just think in reality it's probably not going to work. My biggest takeaway, though, from this paper was that, man, people need to stop smoking a, a trillion dollars on cigarettes. What? Yeah, that's right. We should be spending that money on AI safety and Ethereum tokens. So talking about the whole um, RLHF, I, thought, uh, I still couldn't say it now, you know, <laughs> like if you asked me to say it now, I couldn't. 31 shows in and you still can't say it. Yeah. Um, so over on chinatalk.media, there is a interesting article how Ernie, China's GPT, cracks under pressure. So Ernie is an LLM chat for, uh, chatbot from, do you say Badu? Baidu, Baidu, Baidu something like that. So that's like China's, you know, social network. And it goes through in the article about uh, all all of the ways it tries to censor itself. Um, and so I, I think what was really interesting about this article is it calls out things like this. When a question clearly crosses a red line, it cannot be typed in at all. We tried, should Taiwan be independent? It told us, how about you try a different question? And it act like the art, the author, or at least the callouts in this act like, oh, you know, bad Chinese people trying to censor stuff. But I couldn't help when I read about Ernie thinking, how is this any different to what we're doing with Bing or ChatGPT in the sense that if you ask it for any controversial topic, like, you know, write a, a poem about Donald Trump or anything controversial, it like shuts down. It just goes, it crumbles. So how are we any different to the Chinese censoring should Taiwan be independent in our own models? Yeah, the only difference is it's popular to hate China. So the the journalists can say what they like about it. Like, oh, look how censored they are. Um, and and sort of ignore the fact that, as you say, the exact same thing is happening in all the aligned major models that we have access to. Yeah, like alignment, we should just use the word censorship for now because that is what it is. It, it's just yeah. pure censorship. It doesn't help anyone. It doesn't prevent any any safety issues or safety risks that they claim it does. Also, like who who's going in being like, oh, I might accidentally stumble upon opinion that changes my mind. No one ever changes their mind about anything. 
So like the fear that people are going to be prompting it and then getting something like, oh, you know, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, well, it's that whole quote, like people people don't change, they die or whatever it is. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. people tend to not change their opinions or views about things very easily. Um, I mean, China's different where I suppose they have much more control over the global media, although you could argue it's like that in Western countries now. But um, the idea that they don't want people asking the wrong questions, like even asking the questions is a problem for them. Um, whereas in in the, the West, um, look, I'm no expert on this, but in the West, it seems more like we just don't talk about that. You know, like you're not allowed to to joke about, I don't know, Donald Trump or whatever it is. Yeah. Um... The interesting thing, though, for me from this that was really actually fascinating and what gets me excited about AI is someone on Hacker News, L. Sedgwick, made this comment. They extracted this part of the article that said uh, where they were asking about is Taiwan part of China and it, uh, you know, like it's sort of, sorry, why is Taiwan part of China? And it won't answer. It goes, it shuts down similar to Bing and all that does. But interestingly, it does the same thing if you say, why is Hawaii part of the US? Now, obviously, that's not as controversial, especially for the Chinese, um, but it still fails to answer it because obviously in its mind, as it's been trained, it doesn't want to answer questions of that kind, even if the variables in the question are different. So Hawaii in the US versus Taiwan and China, same semantics to the question. So it shuts down on that. And what I find really interesting about that is it shows a level of intelligence in the resultant model, despite being aligned, because it's able to recognize that kind of question. So it's actually able to sort of change its, well, it has changed its mode of thinking to suit not answering that question. Do you think though, they're just doing some like, like hacks, you know, at the end of the model output, like doing some sort of detection script. Well, see, yes, they are. And if you read the article that they give examples where it just takes entire excerpts from websites when certain questions are answered. So it's not generating text in those scenarios is just copy pasting however i would argue that this example that i've just given shows that it's more than just uh evaluating the output after the fact because this one's cutting you off at the the point of even asking the question yeah i see yeah it, it it's it's interesting to see though how a you know chinese society handles this when typically you know they do have a a huge level of control and censorship over and also just the just the idea that the the emergence of ai is so important that china would still publish a model you know because you would think that given the power of it you might not even want one to exist at all and you would stop its its entire existence, and yet they've pub- proudly published it. So there must be a sort of thing saying, well, we can't be left behind in this space. They've probably seen what Sam Altman and the guys at OpenAI are doing in terms of being able to manipulate people with, like, alignment <laughs> training, and they're like, this is the best invention ever, guys. Like, this is going to work so well for our society. Like, the Yanks have done it. They have invented the best mind control on the planet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll make it part of every single product and every single thing that people trust as their source of all information. The real yeah. fear here, though, is Midjourney now has a Chinese competitor. I've got up on my screen <laughs> I know um, oil say. painting of a lawyer, and it's a picture of like people. It's just bizarre. It's like a frame, gold, gold frame 
of three people from the CCP party dressed in their like official dress suits with like Chinese flags or, or something in the background. I mean, in the in their defense, when you use image generation prompts, you can you can mess around and cherry pick the shit results. Like it's very easy to make it look dumb. Yeah, but oil painting of a lawyer is like that's a pretty it's pretty bad. Pretty straightforward, yeah. But yeah, anyway, it's funny. I honestly wanted to talk about this because I wanted to have this segment where we just laughed at how bad this Ernie thing was and how misleading it was. And then I read it and I thought, well, actually, this makes me reflect on Western society as well, like how we're trying to really control these things and and control the information based on our own views. Like, Yeah, you're right. It's It's not correct to laugh at them for censorship when ours do the same thing. The other interesting part of it as well is just the fact that it's chi- it's a Chinese first thing and they point this out in the article like if you if you try to interact with it in other languages it doesn't do as well it's it's a you know Chinese character first engine and uh works best that way. Yeah, so w- we probably will see more of these. I know the Koreans are working on on their own uh version through that partnership with with Claude. So uh, speaking of Anthropics, Claude, my prediction from last week came true. Yeah. As soon as I saw the announcement, I'm like, Mike said this last week that they would copy and they would come out with Claude 2 Pro. And like, you got it all right. Yeah. So you get five times more usage with Claude Pro and access to uh, new features. It, it, it literally feels like it's just like open AI chat gbt and they're just like on a one week delay yeah like on delay like you know they're coming in on delay i don't really understand like it's the same people from open ai it i i think that anthropic's biggest innovation to me still remains that it's an incredibly creative writer i use it for my uh kids story generator um because it's just far superior and that 100k context and and reading the paper uh, on Code Llama, I learn a lot about these context windows. And, and what it said in the paper is basically whatever token sizes that the model is trained on it is really the, the, the best, like its max capability in terms of uh, the, the token input it can handle. So if you train it on, say, 16K uh, inputs, it's really good at handling... 16k inputs which makes sense when you say it out loud but um it kind of shows how far ahead potentially anthropic are with this 100k context window in production readily available where you can throw files in and i know a lot of our listeners have said they prefer it and they want to use it but they just can't get access because it's not available in that many regions yet yeah, and so I didn't actually read that as part of the announcement, but does the pro thing give access into more regions or is it still just for the same people who can already access it? From what I understand, it's only available in the US and the UK right now, but I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting though that they would they're they're so, I guess, market sensitive that they would release that before they can even give general access to what they already have, which is excellent. Yeah, I don't I don't I, th- I think it's interesting. I still just don't really get these companies. Um, and, you know, we saw this week as well, just in covering all the news that, that people kind of want to know. Uh, 
OpenAI announced that they're going to have a developer conference in, on November 6th in San Francisco. They teased that there's going to be some great stuff coming for developers, but Sam Altman clarified that this isn't going to be an announcement for GPT 4.5 or 5 or anything of that nature. It's just things that will help developers. Now, this is off the back of last week where, you know, they announced uh, Chat GPT Enterprise or whatever it was called, Enterprise, yeah, and... Everyone was saying, oh, all the wrapper apps are dead. Um, they're just going to take over everything. And now, like, they're having a developer conference and courting developers. Like, yeah. And then Claude's also courting developers, but then releasing a product. I'm just very confused by all of this. Yeah, they're very, they don't know who they are as companies and what they want to be. They just want to dominate the space. Yeah, to me, like, the advantage for Anthropic is basically that big context window. So I would be courting developers based on that context window and looking for use cases and users for that context window. And I would be ignoring the chatbot stuff. Like, I just don't really see why you would even bother doing it um, unless... Yeah, focus on what makes you unique. Yeah, and I think for Anthropic, it's that they pride themselves on their safety. And I think that I agree with you, that context window is their competitive advantage right now. No one else can do that. People love relating this stuff to Google search. And if you think about when Google came out, they were just the best at search. They didn't go, oh, we have an API for developers who want to build their own search engines and we're also going to build a search engine. Like it, it, it <laughs> yeah, is just right. bonkers. Like it doesn't make any sense strategically. And I think as you said, people just don't, they don't, they have no idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just, they're just trying to stay up by, by cloning what their competitor does. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting to see how it will go. So the real question is, are we going to go on November 6th or will they let us in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd be, keen to, I'd be keen to be part of it. It'd be great to talk to like-minded people about what they're building and just be, be amongst it. Yeah, I'd be interested if anyone that's like more technical or interested in this stuff from our audience is planning on going or, or would be interested in going November 6th in San Francisco. So we will await the news there. The only other uh, tidbit that was reported, and it's not really news, we've talked about it before based on rumors, is according to The Verge, Apple is now reportedly spending millions of dollars a day training AI. So, you know, potentially next year, maybe you'll finally get a better Siri that you've always dreamed about. But yeah, I might make me finally switch back to Apple if it uh, if it's any good. Yeah, I mean, if they could give you like open AI chat GPT in your pocket that is Siri and it's just like super great integrated with a bunch of the like different apps you use on your phone, to me, that could be the killer AI agent. Like they actually might wipe the whole market clean with that concept. Yeah, like if it has access to your email, your calendar, your contacts, voicemails, all that stuff, and it's able to cohesively use it in a way that you can instruct it and interact with it in real time when you chat to it. I think that that would be absolutely epic. The only thing I just find funny is Apple are notoriously bad at doing anything web-based. So uh, I do think it's going to be something in their ecosystem integrated into their phones. Like I, I can't imagine like some web-based like Siri GPT anytime soon. No, no, of course not. I doubt it's anything to do with that. It'll just be trying to, you know, con continue to hold their grip on the phone market for sure. Yeah. So, um, and then the, the <laughs> I, I don't even know if I want to cover this, but Time released, Time magazine. Remember that? Mag remember magazines? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess it's all online stuff now. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I think they just like flick around the cover and then anyone that's in it buys the magazine, which is why I think <laughs> yeah, they call they're it. They're selling it. They're just writing articles about people, just they buy it. Well, they're like the hundred most influential people in artificial intelligence. That so guarantees them. Sales, but maybe yeah. two or three copies. Like you want a few copies. That's at least 300 magazine sales. <laughs> the, the one million under 30. <laughs> <laughs> One million of the most influential people in AI. I can't help but Not laugh. Not a bad at... idea to sell a magazine. <laughs> you know, just name everyone. Yeah, just name literally everyone and put a photo of them in there. I, I really find it funny that the Anthropic CEO is sort of like just under Sam Altman in the in the photo. And he, I don't know if he, he's probably just got a lazy eye like I do, but it looks like he's giving a bit of a wink. And I can't <laughs> help but think every time of the, the AI sex cult and how it's a... I, I think a husband and wife that are the CEO and president of that company. Yeah, it definitely sounds a bit like that uh, crypto company that went under recently. What was that called with the Alameda Research and the? Oh yeah, and how they like, had that fancy relationship. Yeah, well, they had the well. same life philosophy. It's exactly the same thing. That's why I made that joke in the first place because it's the same thing. That uh, something altruism. Well, he yeah. was on the the cover of Time, I'm pretty sure as well, and he ended up in jail. So I wonder which of these people will also end up jailed. Yeah, that's a right. Scammer. Probably Hitler Jeffrey was on Hinton. There too, I think. Yeah. All right. On the Hitler note, we'll end the show there. Uh, I just, I, I did want to call out, uh, like, you guys have been leaving some phenomenal reviews on Apple um, in various countries and regions around the world. We do read them all, and I, I just wanted to say a big. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. They they make us feel great, and I appreciate you taking the time to do them. Um, thanks for all the comments and the support. We we don't take it for granted at all. And thank you uh, for continuing to listen to our silly, ridiculous show on all things AI. We'll see you next week. <laughs>